All right, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 4 toward the end, and we're going to work our way into chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. These are the words of God. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in all things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we ask now that your spirit would equip each of us to not only hear your word, but as a result become doers of the word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 <clears throat> so this is the seventh message in our series in Hebrews, and it occurred to me this past week that I haven't really spent a whole lot of time explaining the subtitle to the series, uh, which is Outside the Camp. The point of this is connected to something we'll get to later, which is found in Hebrews 13, 13. There the writer says, So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. The admonishment here is concerned with us following Jesus outside the camp, which is in reference to Jesus being crucified outside of the city gates as a testimony to his cursed situation. It is also a testimony to his radical break with Judaism, which had become a false religion. And it is also a break with statism and humanism. So, outside the camp is, what we mean by that is, it's a call to take seriously the law word of God, take seriously our calling in the world as Christ's disciples, to apply this faith for all of life. So that's why I chose, um, on the graphic you can see, that's why I chose the outside the camp 
theme. As followers of Jesus, we are told and called to a life of cruciformity, a life shaped by the cross, a life shaped by the crucified Messiah. But that is not the same as saying that we should be pietists, pacifists, and retreatists. Quite the opposite, actually. Anyhow, we'll return to some of those in the weeks ahead, some of that stuff. And I'm going to touch on that even a little bit later in this message. Now, before we dig into our text, I want to try my best to summarize the first few chapters. And I want to do it in such a way as to help you follow the writer's train of thought. So, I'm going to just, you know, quickly summarize it. And you can, you'll pick up and hear where I'm getting this stuff from um, in Hebrews. So here's the argument so far. God has worked through the prophets of old to reveal the truth, his truth. But now in these last days, these final days of the Old Covenant, before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, Jesus, God's Son, has now appeared. Jesus is the Son who has inherited everything. He is also God the Son. He is on His throne now, having made purification for sins. He is more excellent than the angels, so don't worship them. Don't worship the angels. The Old Testament scriptures, what about them? Well, they point entirely to Jesus the Son, completely and entirely. None of the angels have this divine sonship, only Jesus. Angels are messengers, and they have a role, but it is to serve Jesus. Now, because of all of the aforementioned truth, we have to pay attention to what we've heard, to what we've heard, lest we drift God's law was serious in the Old Testament. Why would it be any less serious now in the New? God used the apostles to confirm all of these testimonies, even using signs and gifts to confirm this testimony. Since Jesus is the transcendent God, we should also know that man is called to labor inside of God's covenantal world. Everything is subjected to Christ, even our calling to labor in the world for his glory. So the dominion covenant hasn't been rescinded. It hasn't been revoked. But lest we think of Jesus as only transcendent, we should know that he is imminent as well. Jesus Christ came to earth. He became lower than the angels. He suffered unto death so that he could bring many sons to glory. Since he is the captain now of our salvation... We need to know how his captaincy came to fruition. He came, he suffered, and through that suffering, he sanctifies us. He became like us, he became flesh and blood, and in so doing, he defeated death and the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. Now, doing all of that, he freed us now from being slaves to death. So, the, this is the summary continued. So, he helps us. He was made like us in all things so that we might become merciful, so that he he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, being our propitiation. He was tempted just like you and I, so that he can indeed help us. So you, brothers and sisters, you are to partake in this heavenly calling. So don't forget who we're talking about. Don't forget Jesus, who is your apostle and your high priest. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Also, don't mistake him as someone less than Moses. Moses was faithful, as Exodus tells us, in all of God's house as a servant. Jesus has come in the same manner, in the same business, as the son of the house. The owner, 
and the architect of the house that Moses worked in. This new covenant social order is the house, the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation, the new covenant. Now, in light of all this, brothers and sisters, don't harden your hearts. Speaking of Moses, remember the Israelites in the wilderness who saw the mighty miracles of God and still bemoaned the fact that they were in the wilderness. Remember how that generation had hardened their hearts and how God didn't let them enter rest because of their sin. So don't follow in their footsteps. Instead, enter God's Sabbath rest, not by seizing from doing work, which is your calling, but by doing restful work in Christ Jesus. Find your refreshment in Him. The Israelites had the gospel preached and they rejected it. You have the same good news proclaimed to you now. Don't make the same mistake. Don't sin like them. Sabbath rest remains, so be diligent to enter it. So that's Hebrews 1 through 4. (laughs) That's the summary up until this point. And basically the thought continues. Let's look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. A couple of comments are in order. I don't believe that this verse should immediately make you feel comfortable. At least, again, not initially. Surgeons use scalpels because they serve a purpose. Yes, they could hurt, and they do in fact cut, but the cut is meant to lead to the healing. So don't miss the connection of the train of thought. We are, think about last week, our message last week, we are to enter God's rest, so don't be disobedient, right? Don't fall into disobedience. Why? Because of the, the Word of God. It's unavoidable, and it cuts deep. It's, the scripture says it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts deep enough to, to touch the joints and the marrow, uh, the soul and the spirit. And the word of God judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's that powerful. So, you know, you've been uh, regenerated, you've been changed, so you can find comfort in, comfort in these verses. But I don't think that's the way the author meant it. I think you're supposed to be scared to death. <laughs> Find, um, know that God's word is powerful. Don't be flippant about the word of God. Take it seriously. Know that you can't find a place on this earth where you can escape its power. And on top of all of this, no creature is hidden from God's sight. Listen, there is no place in the universe where you can escape the authority of God. And that includes inside the, the Supreme Court of the United States of America. There is no place in the universe where you can escape the authority of God. Now, lest you be given to despair and find yourself not comforted at all and seeing, seeing that God's word does in fact cut deep, we have some encouragement. Jesus is our high priest. Verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We now have a high priest who has gone through death and out the other side. He has entered heaven, he sits on the throne, and he does so as one who knows what is going on. Jesus is not on the throne aloof to the world's problems. He's a sympathetic high priest, one who knows what it's like to be tempted with sin, yet he is without sin. Because of it, verse 16 says that we can draw near with confidence. So know this, we are not approaching an egotistical king whose bombastic vainglory won't allow us to come near. You can bother this king in the middle of the night. You can, you can approach him. He's not so arrogant to be consumed. You know, he's busy with you know, the billions of planets that, it, that are out there. You know, I don't have time for you. That's not who we're talking about. We are drawing near, not to a throne of wrath, but as his children, we are drawing near to his throne of grace. And in that drawing near, in our pursuit of Christ and his law word, we may, in fact, receive mercy and find grace to help us when we need it. I can think of no better verse to go to and appeal to in times of, of the times that we live in right now. To be able to go to a high priest who hears us, who's, who knows what, what is going on, who is concerned with you as a person, as he knows your name, that's, that's comforting. Now, central to our passage this evening is the theological concept of atonement. That's why I call this message the atonement. Let's look at chapter 5. In verse 1, we see that in the Old Testament scheme of things, high priests were, one, they were taken from among men, and two, they were appointed on behalf of men by God. So don't miss that. Priests are chosen from among men, so he has to be a man. Jesus fits that, right? But two, they are appointed on behalf of men by God. So the, the office is not something cooked up by mankind. Adam and Eve didn't get out of the garden after they were expelled from it and say, well, you know, we should probably come up with a priestly system here. In fact, Jesus had already given us that uh, as he um, killed the animals and clothed Adam and Eve um, and covered their shame. Um, so it's, not, it's, it's a God-ordained office. It's not something that man made up. Now the reason for this office is to, and it says in our text, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So priests serve in an intermediary role. They're a go-between, basically, between man's relationship with God. Man is here, God is there, there is a, this mediation role that they play. Now verse 2 tells us that these high priests, they can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because guess what? That priest is the very same way. Every priest is found in this situation, particularly the priests of the Old Covenant economy. Why? Well, verse 3 tells us why. He is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, both his sin and the sin of the people. So this was essentially the liturgy of the Day of Atonement, which we read in Leviticus 16 earlier. Aaron had to make atonement for his own sin, because he was imperfect, he was a fallen sinner in need of God's grace, Aaron needed Jesus too, but he was a stand-in for Jesus, but he also had to uh, not only atone for his sin, but the sins of the people. Now, we are reminded again in verse 4 
that the honor isn't in the person, but in the calling. Like Aaron, the high priest is chosen by God, and that is where the honor resides. Now, in the same way, Christ didn't glorify himself. Christ did not glorify himself. He was chosen by God for the task. The author quotes Psalm 2-7 to prove his point here in verse 5. The Son of God, begotten, not made, was begotten in the position of high priest at the resurrection. When did Jesus become high priest? At the resurrection. Now, you familiarize yourself with Psalm 2, because the New Testament has it earmarked often as a favorite. In Psalm 2, we see um, from places like even Acts 13, that this psalm is about the priesthood and kingship of Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. Psalm 2 is all about this God-man entering the heavens, entering the heavens, asking of the Father for all of the nations. And why does Jesus dare ask for the nations? Because he bought them. He bought them with his blood. They belong to him. He's not asking for something that the Father is not going to give him. In a sense, America and Pakistan and China and North Korea, are all, they all belong to Jesus. So the deed's done. Like They are all, um, all credited to his account. He owns the title. Everything's in his name. And now we are just basically plundering the Egyptians, so to speak, which is one of our favorite verses around here. So, the thing is though, before he suffers, excuse me, before he was raised, he had to suffer. Jesus Christ had to suffer and then be raised. Now up until this point, many Hebrews, and I'm speaking specifically of Jewish Christians who would have received this letter, many Hebrews would have had trouble accepting the, this about Jesus. Know, know this, Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Nor can a priest be a king. That's, that's where the hang-up would have been for them. How could he possibly be king and priest? The, those offices don't work together. I mean, well, they work together, but you can't be both in the old economy. So they would have struggled with that, this idea. But the writer knows something crucial, and we'll come back to this idea in chapter 7. Jesus is a priest, not after the Aaronic priesthood, not after the tribe of Levi, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, which here in verse 6, that's a quote of Psalm 110.1, which is another well-known passage. Look at verse 7. Let's read that. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Think Jesus in the garden the night before, right? Right before Judas comes to kiss his cheek and betray him um, right before Peter grabs the sword and cuts off Malchus's ear um, right before that think, G think the disciples sleeping Jesus sweating as like drops of blood Luke tells us think about that when you read that verse in verse 7 verse 8 although he was a son he learned obedience from the things which he suffered and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. That's going to be our focus text in a little bit. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the point here has to do with Jesus taking on flesh. And this was actual flesh, not pretended flesh. 
He learned obedience through his suffering, which simply means that he learned humanity like a normal human. And after being mature and complete, he then became the source of eternal salvation. And that fact rests on his atonement and his position of high priest, not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. So, that's just a quick review of the text. Um, the first few chapters of Hebrews and then our text for this evening. Now I, I just want to shift gears and pull some things out and make some application points. When we consider the landscape of contemporary Christianity and evangelicalism, we can easily see that most men prefer pious gush, in the words of Rush Duny, instead of faith for all of life. Most, your average Christian, wants pious gush. That's what they want to hear. And this type of pious gush usually revolves around quippy niceties and do-goodism. That's usually what, what is presented from pulpits. And we'll get into that even next week in the next section, which is I'm really looking forward to with the issue of milk and meat of the word. So, but, but we'll get into that later. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up now is because of what the t pious gush tends to produce. When the church decides to reject the kingdom of God in history and the subsequent means of that kingdom taking root in a society through the law of God, what most people do not realize is that the rejection of Christ's lordship and kingship now in history necessarily leads to a rejection of his priesthood too. Don't miss this point. When you reject that Jesus is king and lord now, and not in some obscure thousand years that no one really, you know, he, he's king sort of in my heart now, but, you know, the magistrate doesn't have to obey him. That's, you know, the majority of what passes in theological belief today. But when you, what, what we don't realize is when you reject his kingship, you necessarily reject his priesthood. Failing to acknowledge the crown rights of the Lord Jesus Christ in the public square is also a failure to acknowledge the implications of the atonement, the atonement as well. I'll say it again. Failure to acknowledge the crown rights of the Lord Jesus Christ in the public square is also a failure to acknowledge the implications of the atonement as well. Permit me a moment to explain. Regarding the relationship of the kingdom to Christ's atonement, I'll say this. There is no kingdom of God apart from the atonement. There is no crown apart from a cross. Jesus Christ could not possess the nations without first atoning for them. What this passage and other passages like it teach is the fact that before Jesus could be exalted as king, he had to be humbled as high priest. The cross was a prerequisite to the resurrection and ascension. So don't miss the order. That's, that's why we call ourselves Cross and Crown Church, because we're trying to cover everything. You, you have to have the cross before you get to the crown. Okay? So in order for the kingdom of God to come to earth as it is in heaven, one of the most central issues for man had to be dealt with. What is the most problematic thing in this world? Kids, what's the most problematic thing in this world? It starts with S, 
It rhymes with din. Sin. Did I make it obvious? Sin. Sin. Oh, well, Satan's a problem too. <laughs> but Jesus has defeated Satan, so we're good. Uh, sin. Or, let me say it this way, covenant breaking. Covenant breaking. Hey, listen carefully. The atonement of Christ, our high priest, takes men from being a covenant breaker and turns them into a covenant keeper. Don't miss this. Because when we think about the cross, typically we just kind of reduce it down to, well, my sins are forgiven, though I still feel guilty all the time, and you know, there's other issues there, but I'm going to heaven. And, and we believe that. When Jesus' when Jesus' blood was spilled out for you, your sins were washed clean. I mean, we just sang a bunch of songs about that. Your sins were actually judicially dealt with. They were, they were removed. But don't miss, though, the broader picture of that, too. You have now been taken from a position of covenant breaker, an ethical position of covenant breaker, and now you are an ethical covenant keeper. That's, that is the bigger picture of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus had a royal calling from his birth. Okay? He was clearly David's son. You, um, <laughs> when you're in the line of David, there's royalty. However, in order for this king to have his kingdom, he needed to undo the problem of the first Adam. The first Adam brought sin and death and rebellion. The second Adam, in undoing this curse, brought righteousness, life, and justice. So the, note, note this. The kingdom of God is marked by peace and righteousness and justice. The kingdoms of men, covenant-breaking men, is marked by sin and death and rebellion. So there's this division. Now, in order for God's kingdom to invade the realm of the first Adam, the second Adam had to atone for the sins of man. You don't have the kingdom unless you have the atonement. Now, that was the cross of Jesus Christ. So know that. When, a lot of times when we think kingdom, we think, you know, Jesus is king and everybody's obeying his law. And that's true and that's what we love. But it's not just that. A kingdom and atonement go together. You can't have one without the other. Which means this. Any preaching of the cross that is divorced from the kingdom, or any preaching of the kingdom that is divorced from the cross, is a truncated message. If, listen, I'm going to get preachy here, as if that's not what I've been doing. If... if if you, if you want to properly preach, I'm talking to pastors now, if you want to properly preach a Good Friday sermon, you better have kingdom on your lips. Amen. You can't have one without the other. So any preaching that involves the cross but no kingdom, or in talks about the kingdom with no cross, it's a truncated, diluted down, squashed to virtually nothing gospel message. The cross and the crown go together. And this is the pious gush I was referring to earlier. Sadly, most gospel preaching today speaks nothing of the kingdom. Typically, someone thinks they're preaching the gospel when they share the spiritual laws, or they talk about Romans Road, things we may in certain contexts believe in. Um, but, but that's part of the issue. Now, sit, listen to this. Since there is no neutrality... The question is never if man will have an atonement. The question is never if man will have an atonement, but which atonement will he have? 
No one is walking out of Planned Parenthood without an atonement theology. No one is walking the halls of Congress without some sort of atonement doctrine. Men will either have Christ as high priest, or he will have the state as high priest. Men will either have Christ as a high priest, or he will have the state as a high priest. Let me explain. Um, I'm going to start big. We're going to talk about statism and some things, and then dig deep into your own application for your own life. Listen, when a man sees his reason, his thinking, his intellect, as the ultimate standard for law and order and justice, he must inherently see collectivism as the solution. So follow the train of thought. The reason the state will always be a priestly state for sinful man is because humanism, at its very foundational, is a power religion. Okay, I'll say that again. The reason the state will always be a... Think Tower of Babel. The reason the collective, the state, will always be the priestly state for sinful covenant breakers, for humanistic ideologies and so forth, is because at its very foundational level, it's a power religion. It's about power. It's not about service, which is what Christianity is. It's about power. Because of the problem of the one and the many, humanism cannot afford to have to let individuals have power. Individuals cannot have power. Just <laughs> so, you know, the Bill of Rights and some other things that we hold dear as, as Americans... Um, when, when you start to see those things just kind of shifted and squished around and, and so on, that's a power play. So if, if, the, if, the, if the state is going to be a high priest who's actually good at his job, he's going to have to take freedom from you. He's going to have to not allow you to have self-government. He's going to, have, he's going to have to remove all of that because clearly you can't be trusted <laughs> as, it's go, as it goes. So all of the power has to be consolidated. There, there's no power in individualism, it's perceived. It's only collectivism. So therefore, unity under this giant collective known as the state becomes the only way to structure a society, to structure it in a way that goes against the Trinitarian Godhead. Welcome to America 2018. Consider the school shooting last week. Who did the people cry out to in order to ask for justification? Who did the people look to when, when things were chaotic and out of control? Who, who did they look to for justification? Who did they look to for atonement, for a solution to the problem? Was it not Caesar? Was it not the state? It is the priest's job to proclaim the solution. And because we have a culture have rejected justification by faith alone in Christ alone, we have subsequently and consequently we have elected to have justification by legislation alone in the state of alone, alone. So people think the problem is the gun. And the solution is the taking of all the guns. Which is funny because somebody will have the guns. Logic is not always the friend of the state. Because we want salvation by law... We inevitably give the state priest-like powers, thinking that the nanny state can save the day. You know, if only we get the right legislation in place. Let's, let's talk about bump stocks. Let's throw that in the news, right? Let, it, you know, if we do that, then these things won't happen. If we just, you know, uh, we here at Crossing Crown, we, 
We are against armed guards at a school and in the same manner of we are against, you know, drinking fountains and lockers. We're against people in schools. So, but that's the type of thinking that you can't, you can't have that conversation in the public square right now because the priest state has had way too much authority. So this is salvation by law and the atonement is by means of the state's legislation. So, Planned Parenthood just happens to be the blood guilt offering. Now, this type of social order inexorably leads to a messianic state, a messiah state, whose role is to care for everyone and everything. From womb to the tomb, which sometimes is the same thing for our neighbor, from womb to the tomb, the priestly state must provide. In the scheme of humanism, Natural law is the redemption. Natural law is the infallible rule. If we just think good enough thoughts, you know, we can make this thing work. But in order to get this infallible rule in place, the state has to be the mediator to enforce it. He has to be the priest. It must offer atonement as the vehicle for this redemptive social order built on natural law. This is salvation by legislation. And this is the ultimate power religion. Thus, justification by faith in the state alone remains the religious doctrine central to the status agenda. And where is the church? <laughs> the unity of, of priesthood and kingship, those two offices in Christ, is only by virtue of Melchizedek. So any other attempt at unifying these two offices apart from Christ must lead to a power play by the state. It's not good enough that Jesus is, is king and priest. We won't bow down to his kingship, and we will not take his atonement. We will create our own. That's what we're thinking. That's what we have. So any unity of these offices in terms of finite men and covenant breakers necessarily leads to a messianic state. So again, where is the church? Why aren't we talking about these things? Because we have a self-oriented gospel message and because we don't think it has anything to do with the social order around us, we are now handcuffed. And most Christians, they send their children to the priests of Baal, hoping that somehow they might influence them, the priests, to trust Christ. How will society believe in the gospel of the priestly kingdom of Christ when the church won't even believe it? How can we teach and preach a Christ alone is high priest gospel message if we won't even adhere to it? Listen, bowing before Christ as both king and priest inherently means yoking oneself to his doctrinal parameters, his doctrinal patterns. If you want Jesus, take it all. Don't take part of it. Don't take, don't take Jesus as king of my heart. He's high priest of my heart, but that has nothing to do with what goes on around me. It means trusting his atonement and believing on his offices. It means that we not only believe them, but we see them as something um, never to be challenged, never to be rivaled. The church should be absolutely outraged that all of the, the, the state grows and grows and grows, and we just we, we hop right on. If we really believe in Christ's atonement, then we must reject other atonements. If you 
really believe in Christ's atonement, then you better be on guard for other false atonements, because they're out there. And if we really believe that Jesus is king and priest, then we must reject anyone's attempt at usurping Christ's roles, especially the state. And I get it, I really do. Rebellion against the messianic state is considered treason and blasphemy. That's why the church has basically remained silent. But silence in the face of rival kingdoms who want to usurp God's authority in Christ is actually saying a whole lot. A word of warning, though, is in order. It is possible to preach atonement, to preach about man's guilt being removed by Christ, and do it keeping more guilt on someone. So, you know, <laughs> so when you preach about sin and, you know, sin, 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 you know, there's no grace. I think hyperfundies, you know, the KJV onlyists who are, are clearly rabid in their theology. Um, it is possible to preach this and then heap more guilt. Because I'm telling you, the atonement of Christ is sufficient to remove your guilt. I don't want to make you feel guilty in the process because of the problems that plague us. Modern clergy who do not equip people to go forth in the power of the gospel of the kingdom and build said kingdom in their little corner of the garden city are preaching for more enslavement. They're preaching for more enslavement. That's why they stand behind a pulpit and say, well, I'm not going to preach any doctrinal stuff. That's Doctrine divides, as it should. Enslavement to guilt, and thus enslavement to the statist institution. So the last thing I want to do is preach more guilt, but we must consider these things, otherwise we're going to be another generation ineffective for the kingdom. We, post-millennialists, often fight for Jesus to be acknowledged as king. This is good, and it is right, and it is true. But equally important in our mission is a fight to see Jesus acknowledged as the high priest, and the only high priest. If we do not have Christ as a priest, we will not have him as a king. In order for us to have his law obeyed in society, we must also, with it, have his mediation. So if we refuse to have Christ as our great high priest, and, and subsequently we refuse his atonement, then we will give ourselves over to a life of self-justification and self-atonement. So this means that we will always be looking for ways to make ourselves look better than we actually are. And no one, no one is able to manage his own sin, nor should anyone even try. But self-atonement can rear its ugly head in a variety of ways. A husband who on the inside is rotting away with his addictions, but in the public eye around people he needs to impress others, and thus he plays the role of a public servant. That's self-atonement. He'll help with the kids, but actually despises his own at home. What about the wife, who is this injustice collector, who is always picking apart the lives of others through social media and backstabbing, but sees herself as okay because, after all, she, she's crunchy. I can't believe I said that word in the sermon. One of the most common ways that we adopt a self-atonement attitude is when we point out the frailties and insufficiencies and foibles of others, all the while asserting our own superiority. This is where it's going to get, I'm going to come at you a little bit. We excel at showing ourselves grace, but we find ourselves in short supply of the same grace when it comes to others. We get defensive, 
looking to justify ourselves while simultaneously condemning others. And this plays out in our, in, in our churches, in our homes, and in our society at large. And this is a warning to us, Cross and Crown, not to give ourselves over to that sort of behavior. And all of that, though, it stems from a lack of trust in the atonement of our great high priest. So when we think about the word of God being God's means of bringing judgment and lawsuit to a rebellious people, we have to consider the fact that when we don't treat scripture as such, when we don't treat the atonement as being ultimately sufficient, what we are saying is that ultimately we don't fear God. We fear men more than God. We are people who want self-atonement more than we want the atonement of Christ. And how does this play out? Well, it starts with individuals who want nothing to do with seeking Christ's guilt offering. They would rather have their own. So here's the thing, and we're getting close to the end. God's word cuts in both directions. It's a double-edged sword. It cuts in both directions. It delivers the needy, and it destroys God's enemies. Judgment from God's word isn't the final answer for God's people. Where can man go to be sure he's on the right side of judgment? The high priest, Jesus. Now, in Scripture, we're told to put, to put on Christ, and the reason that we're supposed to put on Christ is because only a clothed man whose covering is sufficient can be in the presence of God. And as an aside, by the way, doing some research last week, it occurred to me that I, I had been wrong on something, um, which, you know, I'm... <laughs> All of us can be wrong about any, any time during the day, right? The priesthood of all believers is actually not, even, not a New Testament invention. It's rooted in the Old Testament as well, especially in places like Exodus 20, 26. And that's because basic to all government is self-government. And so all covenant members are to be priests after the order of Christ, our high priest. So you are all kings and you're priests. That's what the scripture tells us. We are mediators of this covenant, in a sense, under Christ, that we follow him and we implement his ministry, his atonement in the world around us. So we are clothed with his righteousness, and after being clothed, we go into the world as living sacrifices, looking to implement his priesthood into all areas of life. Now, in light of that statement, let me end on a note of encouragement. The passage here ought to encourage every single one of you here. To the mother who's stressed out to the max, find rest in God through Christ our high priest. He is your mediator. You need no one else. You need not atone for your sin. Christ has done it for you. You need not to justify yourself. Christ has done it for you. Your encouragement, mothers, should be found in Christ our high priest who can sympathize with you. Look, he knows what it's like to have rebellious children. He had them in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to have a busy day. He's keeping track of the solar system. He knows what it's like to be weak and broken. He was beaten with rods and crucified on a cross. He knows what it's like to have to clean up mess after mess. His creation was marred by sin. He knows. Men, he knows what it's like to have a family. He invented it. He knows what it's like to have to lead when you're weak. Jesus led his disciples, and then they fell asleep on him. He knows what it's like to have to work hard. He is building this house. He knows what it's like to have to juggle a busy schedule. 
He invented the calendar. He knows. So to all of you who are called kings and priests in the Bible, draw near with confidence. Find mercy and help in your time of need. Find Sabbath rest through obedience to this priest and king. And know that, know that the purpose of the atonement is to make an end for sin and to empower us by his grace to do God's will, to turn this world into a garden city, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So find encouragement, find hope, find purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have done a terrible job in not only trusting your atonement, but also believing the superiority of your priesthood. We have farmed out our justifications to the state and asked her to protect us. Instead of trusting you, Lord, we have contributed to false understandings of your atonement, even going so far as creating our own atonements. Would you bring forgiveness and healing to us, Lord Jesus? Would you help us submit to both your priesthood and your lordship? We are a people in great need, so would you encourage us this evening as we celebrate Jesus, our great high priest, who forgives our sin, atones for our guilt, and empowers us for kingdom obedience. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.